Huber and joining me as always is Nick Seagraves. Hey Nick. Hey Ryan. And joining us from the booth that never was, Rick Deal. Hey Rick. Hey guys. Uh, today we're going to talk about something big. We're going to talk about something scary, something world changing, something that uh, Timothy Chalamet fans will be salivating over. We are going to talk about the most important science fiction story of all time, which is Dune. And before we get started in do a deep dive into Dune and talk about various other things that are related to Dune. Uh, I was thinking that maybe each of us could go around and talk about our first impression or our first experience with anything Dune related. So I'll start. Uh, I remember being a, uh, a kid, a young kid, probably, I don't know, six or seven years old and we had gotten cable, and uh, this movie was on cable, and I would see parts of it, and they were confusing, and I didn't really have any kind of schema for these things. There were caves and glowing orbs and people with, like, crotch-protective gear and things of that nature and big, large worms in the desert and witches and such, and it was generally very confusing, but... I had an idea that someone was a leader of a group and that it mattered that they were riding these large uh, sandworms. And uh, that was my first impression of Doomed for many, many years until as an adult I actually read the book. So that is, when I think of Dune, I have those images from the, uh, the David Lynch film in 1980-something. Uh, and I think that's, that will always be, to a certain extent, what I think of uh, when I think of Dune. I mean, very similar for me. Kind of stole that right from my memory. It's like weird fragmented glimpses of blue eyes or like oh, yeah. bald women, very harsh angles. Everything's kind of washed out, but then suddenly very oversaturated. It was just like different because maybe... You talked about what your first experiences with Dune was like. Maybe I can talk about, like, in comparison to the other sci-fi I had seen before, really the only thing I had seen at that point, I guess, at that age was... Remember they they re-released all the Star Wars? Yes. Like, when was that? Was that, like, early 2000s or late 90s? <clears throat> it was, like, mid-90s, I think, because it was pre-1999. If we're talking about when they when they did the theatrical re-release, yeah. I'm almost certain that was 1997. And they replaced that like drunk slob man with an actual computer slug. Yes, is that when they made that change in the first one? Yeah, because they actually had cut those scenes, and there was no Jabba until Return of the Jedi, and then they were able to re-add those with a computer-generated Jabba in the place of the sloppy man that they decided not to have in wow. the New Hope originally. That is a new hope. Um, yeah, so I'd seen those, and obviously, like, would engage in lightsaber fights and stuff as a child, but that's very, like, opera. It's very good and evil, kind of knights and princesses in different terms, but then this was truly alien-feeling and very foreign, but... Um, also very harsh like it felt very real it wasn't symbolic i mean it's obviously a symbolic story but it wasn't representational i guess or something yeah it seems like there there was an aspect of survival kind of like a like you mm -hmm. said harshness but also like these people it wasn't magical even though there were magical mm -hmm. elements like it was like this is this is a story about people who are on the edge and who aren't having a great time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, my first real experience with Dune, I'm going to say real experience because, much like you, Ryan, I encountered the movie. Uh, so actually, come to think of it, the first time I ever saw it, I was probably in middle school. And the only reason I was even aware of its existence was in an episode of The Animaniacs, they 
had a pun about dropping bombs on someone, so they started dropping all of these movies that failed. And I remember Dune was one of them. And uh, then one day I saw it in the video store, back when those were a thing. I think dinosaurs still roam the earth, but, you know, it's fine. And I remember... I don't remember all of it, but I remember watching it and just, in my middle school mind, thinking... What in the bloody hell is this? What am I even watching? Like it was, it was very much kind of. I like that in your middle school mind, you're a British man. Yes, I, I, I took that on very early. Was it because you were allowed to say bloody? Because like, who really cares? Like in America, if you're like, oh, don't bloody do that, people are like, ah ha ha, you're so charming. Yeah, yeah, because really, the, uh, you know what? Actually, I think it was more so just kind of a an element of. From very early on, I just decided to become some sort of weird amalgamation of every movie person I've ever met and culture I've encountered. So, wow. yeah, Whew. it wasn't really a conscious decision. Actually, just kind of they happened. Never are. And I'm just this. This is what I am. So I'm, I'm also I... that that borderline sociopath where every time I meet somebody with an accent, like a really strong accent, I'm it. talking to you, but my inner monologue is, don't pick up the accent, don't pick up the accent, don't, don't. do it. You I am know, one of those You people. know something so much worse, though? I really do. I'm sorry if you ever listen to this Scott Seagraves, my father, but if he ever meets someone who has an accent, sometimes he'll start speaking with, like, a Hispanic accent. Like, no matter who... <laughs> The other type of... So he's not mirroring at all. No, he'll just start speaking with this Spanish accent. And he speaks Spanish, like, mm -hmm. pretty well. And he also but, looks like a British soccer coach. Yeah, he's very, like, op open-minded, dude. I just don't know why he does that sometimes. But, yeah, he does. It's funny. Well, we all have our things. So, what the bloody hell is going on yeah, with this Dune yeah. movie? And I didn't really think about it for a long time. I kind of put it, put it away in the back shelf of the brain. And maybe about two years ago... I went on a old school sci-fi kick. I just decided I was going to go through old books that were considered uh, either important to the genre or just things that I was always curious about. And I went through a couple books like uh, Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Ooh. The, the inspiration Runner. for Blade Runner, yes. Yeah. Uh, a book called Hyperion. And... Uh, 2001, which I must say I actually found 2001 really, really fascinating because just since you don't get the benefit of a narration, not that that would have been good artistically, but from a story standpoint, you don't get that in the book, in the movie. So I did find the book actually kind of illuminating. But I went through all these and just they weren't really blowing my hair back. I wasn't amazed. Um, Neuromancer was very interesting. Like that was the real start of cyberpunk. Mm. But all these, I was I was digging the aesthetic, but none of the the core stories like grabbed me. There was nothing where I I finished it and went, yeah, this really engrossed me. I, I'm mm. I didn't get that. Oh, I'm I'm sad this is over. Feel that I had also not gotten in a long time. And then I I decided to go through Dune, and probably the first third of the book I was thinking this is this is weird this is very weird there's all these different houses there's all these different political parties going on like these cultural references and I don't know what the hell is going on and I can't pinpoint where it is it was somewhere between the 40 and 50 percent completion mark that I was just completely engrossed in the story it just captured me and by the time it was over I was shocked by how much I enjoyed the book and how much it had really pulled me in and from that midpoint to the end I just felt very satisfied with the conclusion of the story the the play out for each character I was just really satisfied with the book all around and that was it wasn't much longer after that that I recommended it to you Ryan saying yep. hey you should actually give this a read yeah, it was great. I, I remember having a similar feeling about the book. I was driving across the country listening to the audiobook, but I had also had that similar feeling about the first season of Game of Thrones because I came to mm -hmm. Game of Thrones with not no conception of what it was. I hadn't read any of the books or anything. And when I saw the first couple of episodes, I was like, this, this is really good. This mm -hmm. is, like, really, really good. And I, like... Uh, 
ashamedly binge watched the first season uh, behind my wife's back and had to pay for it later. Um, no, we actually I just had to watch rewatch the first season. <gasps> it's great. Um, Are you guys okay? Yeah, it was fantastic, and we enjoyed it. Um, but I think I think there's a lot of elements to Dune that struck me as superior because I grew up reading sci-fi and uh, reading um, fantasy novels and things of that nature. But I think the the first thing that really stuck with me and still stuck sticks with me to this day is the scene. There's a scene early on where the main character, he's a boy, and he has to meet with these witch ladies, mm-hmm. nun witch, horse breeding people, mm-hmm. and he has to stick his hand inside of a box. Yes, and it's just a really well written scene of. What they tell him, what they don't tell him, what he knows, what he doesn't know, what he has to do, and the whole, the psychological kind of thriller, horror element of, I have to stick my hand inside this box, and I have to do it the right way, and Mm -hmm. I have to be the right thing, or something awful is going to happen to me. And I think that's where it really got me. I was like, wow, that was really suspenseful, of just a kid with some old lady sticking a hand in a box. And I think, you know, there are stories out there that build worlds or that have interesting plot um, mechanisms, but what really caught me was the ability of Herbert to write a scene, because I don't think everybody can do that. No, I completely agree. It was it was a very interesting scene, and it, I feel like that was also kind of setting the stage for the narrative style that flows throughout the book where there is so much inner monologue happening. And I think that, that that's something that probably led to the first incarnation of this as a movie being difficult to convey. Yeah, uh, because absolutely. Because there's so much mental narration. You hear the thoughts of the characters. And I know that narration is fairly often looked down upon as a crutch in film, which should be a visual medium. And I get that. I don't disagree. But with this particular book, so much of the actual storytelling literally happens through inner monologue. So trying to translate that without some sort of actual narration would be beyond challenging. I I actually have no idea how they're going to tackle that in the upcoming version of this. I don't know if they're just going to go for broke and just do it, you know, kind of... The way Thor just embraced, they're like, hey, we've got a rainbow bridge. You don't like it, there's the door. Get the hell out. Maybe yeah. that's what they're going to do here. Mm-hmm. But hey, I could see that. I could see Dune with a rainbow bridge. Um, before we go any further, for the five people who listen to this podcast and the two who haven't seen any version of Dune or Reddit, we might just want to do a very basic, what is this thing? Mm-hmm. What's it about? Because that might be helpful for people who are still listening. Maybe it's four now, or three, who can say. Mm -hmm. Um, That would like to follow the conversation and know what the hell we're actually talking about. So maybe we could kind of do a little, you know, conversational plot discussion of this is what this thing is. And and I can start it by saying uh, this is in space, as most things are. We are right now. We are in space. Uh, so this Isn't is in crazy? space. Yes. As we are. As we all are. Uh, and there are multiple planets uh, with which we are probably unfamiliar. Uh, and by we, I mean American people living in the 20th, 21st century. Um, in addition to that, there are spaceships. There are trade uh, organizations. There are fiefdoms and dukedoms and there are um, political alliances it's this big kind of Nick you wouldn't call it a space opera no it's too sexy for an opera if there's what I like a really key part of it that's great is it's kind of like you were saying with the houses and the trade routes it's almost retro in its ideological structures Mm. but its Mm. mechanisms are all highly futuristic but also weirdly just foreign to us yeah because a lot of the problems in dune 
are based around, well, I mean, like, one of the most famous aspects is the spice, melange, or whatever. <laughs> and So there's a planet called Arrakis. Mm-hmm. It's a desert planet. People so want to control it because yeah. of this spice stuff that, like, is a drug mm-hmm. and, like, helps you do stuff. Helps you live longer, helps you see in the future, helps you be on enough Adderall. I guess it's so it's such good Adderall that you can fly space machines. Yeah. So everyone needs it. Yeah. Like literally you don't it's have space. Great, but also necessary. Yes. Also, once you have used it, you are addicted to it and mm-hmm. can or will die without it. Yeah. So it is it is that vital. Yeah. Kind of an all in thing. Yes. Spoiler alert, could this be a metaphor for something? 8,000 people have 8,000 answers for you. If you ever want to read a bunch of bad hot takes, try to find... My first thought when you said that was like, is it about oil? Is it oil? Is it money? Is it liberals? I don't know. I'm sure there's some type of reading for it. But I always found that interesting that it's like, yes, I'm a duke. And you're like, oh, that's weird. In space, you're a duke in space. Yeah. And like, there's a yeah. castle or or, yeah. or two. It's like, hey, we have these weird uh, like nun ladies. They're kind of cool. They're really into figuring out like who your mom was into, though. <laughs> yeah. By that I mean genetics. Yeah. So yeah. genetically, Becky Jesuits. Becky Becky Jesuits. Benny Jesuits. Benny yeah. Jesuits. <laughs> as as we mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. Uh, Becky Jesuits and. Um, so there's nuns, there's castles and dukes and people have daggers and such. And so it Mm -hmm. seems like it's kind of set up to be from that side of the description, like a fantasy sword and sorcery kind of a thing. There's like chants and prophecies and Mm -hmm. people being destined for things, but it's, but it's sci-fi. Yeah. And it, it, it's very self-aware of that because there's a whole, um, facet of the Becky Jesuits that exists to create false superstitions yes. in, in uncivilized cultures. Like, mm-hmm. they infiltrate uncivilized cultures. <laughs> they, like, start religions. Just to start these prophecies because they're actually genetically engineering that to happen. So mm-hmm. when it does happen, they're like, see, told you. Mm-hmm. We're not crazy. We all smell worm dust we put it in our mouths you're the crazy ones <laughs> well you don't like worm dust <laughs> you don't like worm dust what's wrong with you too bad for you suckers. although to be fair i haven't had any worm dust maybe it's dope yeah i mean there's a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of crazy stuff to get it so yeah you maybe, be the judge maybe it's like the spice that uh, checkers puts on their fries Could what be. is that I don't know. Because that could come from worms. But it is good. I was kind of thinking it was almost like the flip side of every anti-crack campaign in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, try it once, and you're instantly addicted, and you will murder your family for yeah. it. Period. 100%. Mm-hmm. So there's this guy named Paul Atreides, who's the main character, and he's sort of destined to become something or other. And I think they murder his dad, spoiler alert, or something at some point. And so some stuff goes down, which is not fun. Yeah, that uh, happens pretty early on in all fairness. Yeah, if yeah. you get through like 10% of the book, like first of all, you know it's coming. Yeah. You can feel it. It's yeah. like, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. But they kind of have to for their family future. Mm-hmm. And his mom's like super, his mom is like not the wife of his dad. No, she's conky. She's a conky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but she so she's like everyone's like, watch out for that one. She's she gets it. Yeah. She knows. And she's connected to the 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 Becky <laughs> Jesuits. The yes. Becky Jesuits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's she's hot stuff, you know. Yeah. And people are like pretty concerned about her. Mm-hmm. And uh and, and what happens next when they, they go, Hey, we're gonna take over Arrakis here, even though we know we're it's kind of a setup. We're being set up here. Yeah. Mm Because people hate us because we're arrogant and we're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And David Lynch loves us. Um, But yeah, they go to Arrakis. They've got this castle and then there's a betrayal and a war and stuff. And Duke, Duke, Duku, Duke, Mm -hmm. Arrakis Sr., Atreides, Mm -hmm. he gets got. Lado, I think. Duke Lado. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Duke Lado gets, gets, Mm-hmm. Uh, betrayed and such. And then what happens, Rick? After that, his son uh, and his concubine, mm-hmm. they 
Oh, yeah, they skedaddle. Yeah. They run off. They're and like, this is not the place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, more specifically, part of the whole coup, uh, they're, they're essentially kidnapped and they're going to be killed, but they manage to escape. Mm -hmm. And they... And there's a super fat guy involved in this. There is, yes. That, like, floats around on orbs or such. He does. Um, yeah, he's... Stop me when I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, well, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah. A very large, nightmarish Professor Xavier is really what oh, we're yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Who, you know, murders slaves and drinks their blood. I mean, wow. you have to have a hobby. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, was the point. The bad Professor Xavier. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen tuition fees? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just saying. What's right. a blob to do? <laughs> yeah, come on. But so as he is trying to, you know, just murder all the main characters that we know so far, uh, Paul and his mother, mm -hmm. they manage to find the the locals of Arrakis. Because they, like, run off, they're on a ship, and they run mm -hmm. off into the desert, and they're like, we're definitely going to die, because this yeah. is... they. Um, so the main kind of economy of Arrakis. The spice is kind of like this other thing that's controlled and kind of mined and stuff, but the real mm -hmm. economy of the real people of Arrakis is water. It's moisture. Because it's such a desert planet that if you catch yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're dead. Yes. And so they all have these bodysuits um, at least sort of this class race of people that Paul Atreides belongs to. They're these bodysuits that conserve water. They're like wetsuits, and they kind of, when they're out in the desert, they breathe back in, and they cap it captures all mm -hmm. the water and kind of brings it back, and they kind of drink their own juice, mm -hmm. which is super gross, but also totally hey. necessary. Hey. Well, it's just like that scene in Waterworld where Kevin Costner pees into his still and then drinks it, you know. Yeah. Yes. Because everybody saw that and knows exactly what I'm talking about. No, I know I, exactly what you're talking about. If you have not seen Waterworld, you are, yeah. first of all, you're uncultured. Yes. Waterworld and The Postman. Yes. Two incredible post-apocalyptic oh, Kevin Costner films. And AI. Try to watch AI Sober. Get back to me. Yeah, I'll get <laughs> Tell me what your brain's like after that. Tell me what Steven Spielberg was smoking. So, Paul Paul and Mom. Uh-huh. Conky. Mm-hmm. Conky B. We'll yeah. Jessica. Jessica. Yes, her name is Jessica. Isn't it Jessica? Yeah, uh, yeah I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, well, that was a shot in the dark. Yeah, Thank they you. run into some locals. Mm -hmm. The Fremen. Townies. The, the Fremens, the Townies, the, yeah. the original inhabitants. Mm -hmm. The natives, uh, the, if you will. The first peoples. peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they are, like, super good at living on Arrakis because that is literally all they do. Mm-hmm. And so unlike Paul's family, who's like, hey, we have to adjust to this and have all this weird tech to, like, they're just like, we know how to travel. We know, like, how to survive. We know a lot of other things we're not telling you immediately. There's maybe some hidden things going on underneath the surface of the planet. But also, there's these big scary worms that eat, eat people. And if you don't know what you're doing, they're going to eat you. Mm -hmm. For real. And he, I think, isn't it when it's also like, because he had, his dad gave him serious space boy training. I don't know if it's called that. It's, it's like, kind of they're a like, I'm a, com I'm a human calculator boy. What is it? So he was, he was basically doubly trained because his father, the Duke, had him trained in every form of combat possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, including they fought with these giant, sh like, these force field shields. Yeah, they had these oh, shields. shields. And yeah. so uh, it would repel any fast attack, but, you know, as they would say, the slow blade penetrates mm -hmm. the shield. So mm -hmm. they had this whole technique of fighting with and without shields. But he was also trained by his mom, uh, Jessica, the Becky Jesuit, Yes. in the ways of her people. So there were methods of controlling people with voice commands there mm -hmm. was this somewhere between magic and science yeah i would say daddy daddy training's more science mm -hmm. and mommy training's more magic yeah and mm -hmm. so he kind of was trained from both angles and so he was this incredibly elite fighter especially for his age you know he was a young kid maybe a teenager That's 13 14 somewhere in that range yeah. but so for 
for that age, he was an incredible fighter. And when he encounters the Fremen, they are quite shocked by his capability because um, they, they... They consider people who are not Fremen to be soft. Yes, yeah. very much so. And, well, the other part of it, too, is they, they have a certain way of concealing their numbers and their capabilities, but within their actual culture, they are a very strong warrior culture. And uh, so they're, they're not expecting this very soft boy from a world that has oceans. Because he's got too much water in his blood. Mm -hmm. They're like, why aren't you wiry and dry like beef jerky? And he's yeah. like, girl. I am yet soft. He's like, I'm Timothy Chalamet. Come <laughs> at me. Call me by your dunes. Um, call me by your dunes. <laughs> Dad. Yeah, I... He does that with them and they are like... Oh, also, is that when you learn that he fits all those prophecies within their culture? Or is that when... I think it's revealed over time. Yeah. Oh. So, like, the first instance of, of that is even when before his dad dies, when they're first wearing... They call them still suits. Mm -hmm. When he's wearing his still suit, one of the Fremen comes to him and asks, who taught him how to wear it? And he said, no one. This is how I put it on. And he observes that no one who is from, pardon me, no one who is not from that planet ever puts it on right. Yeah. There's always spots and gaps and things that have to be yeah. corrected. And he just simply knew. Yeah, so his drag is strong. Yes. But so he continues to reveal himself through mm -hmm. different elements. That was a big part of it, though, because uh, it, when he proves himself through combat, he is given the opportunity to name himself. And the name that he chooses meets one of the prophecies within their culture. Yeah, so there's the Quetzatz Haderach, which mm -hmm. is what he's prophesied to maybe be by the uh, Beni Jesuit, mm -hmm. Becky Jesuits. Mm -hmm. Benny but then he's called uh, Muad'Dib mm -hmm. by the... I don't know why I know... To be very honest with you, I can't believe that I know all this useless stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, so the Muad'Dib <laughs> is kind of the chosen one from mm -hmm. the desert people... Fremen side of things. Mm -hmm. And he has to, like, fight some dude that he doesn't want to fight, and he has to kill some dude. Mm -hmm. And then he, like, kisses uh, his person that becomes his wife eventually or something for mm -hmm. some reason. And then there's, like, squiggly, wiggly, wormy, squirmy, wormy time. Mm -hmm. And that happens, too. Those are, like, all things. So those are, like, tests that he passes. Yes. Yeah. I feel like I pretty accurately just told the rest of the story, right? Yeah. I think so. Is it, see, this is the thing. I read them all my first year of college, mm. which in my mind, I'm like, oh, some reason. But I'm like, no, it wasn't. And, but I read, I stopped. That was 10 years ago. I read three of them. So right now I'm trying to like, is that the end of it? Or, you know, since we do spoilers all the time, I guess I can just ask. Spoiler spoilers. alert. Mm -hmm. Is the first book also when he sees or he understands his ultimate destiny and sees that they're going to fight that jihad for him. Yes. Yes. And he's like, he gets it and he's like, oh, I might not want to do this. Yeah. yeah. So that becomes an inner struggle for him. The whole idea that there will be this great like interstellar jihad fought on his behalf. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he knows that he needs to, he needs to claim his destiny both for himself and for the people of Arrakis as well as, you know, kind of, overthrow some of the other people that are in power that, you know, killed his dad. And yeah, it's kind of like crouching, tiger-hidden, dueling dragon destinies. Mm -hmm. It's pretty accurate. So having given what is possibly the most coherent summary of Dune that's ever been put forth on media. Oh, easily. It was a good job by us. Yes, and having given, I think, a very clear idea to people who have never read or seen Dune of what's going on here. Um, why is it more than just another story? Why is it important? What are things that you took away from it? Why, Rick, did it pleasantly surprise you? Um, what sets this apart? For me, it was kind of this perfect storm of intricate, well-thought-out world-building, which for me is a big thing. It's not for everybody. But I really do enjoy that. I I got really into the Star Wars universe as a kid. And then I got really, really into the Lord of the Rings and mm. Tolkien-verse as a teenager. 
Um, yes, girls were knocking on my door every day. Thank you for asking. But I, I love that whole idea of, hey, this mountain, I can tell you the name of it in three separate languages that don't actually exist. Just that type of depth in the world. I love that. And I felt like this had that. It was a very well-lived-in universe. Um, I enjoyed the aesthetic of it. There was, again, this almost medieval sword and sorcery feeling to it, but set in space. Mm -hmm. And it was both, and it worked. But the, the final piece of the puzzle for me was... I just found the characters and their journeys to be very compelling. Yeah. I enjoyed the the backstory of the villains as well as just seeing, you know, the the protagonist Paul rise and take his arc mm -hmm. uh, because several of those other sci-fi books I've been through I liked the aesthetic or I found the world's interesting, but there was just something missing yeah. that kept it from being something where I would I would go back and do it again. Whereas Dune, it, for me, it just fired on all the right cylinders, and that was why it was kind of a magical thing for me. I, I think what stood out to me was that, of course, there are other stories that have complex economic, political, uh, cultural systems, uh, but I, I ended up doing kind of a deep dive after I, I listened to the book about how Herbert had gone about writing this, and he goes to the the dunes of Oregon and he's doing all this research and he kind of dedicates, he dedicates the book, he dedicates sort of what became a cultural phenomenon to um, dry land ecologists. And there's so much ecology and like earth science in these books of like how landscapes happen and how water works and so you the planet is such a character and i know we say that all the time now like oh mm -hmm. the ship is a character mm -hmm. like what a hotel yeah <laughs> but it is it is this living breathing ecosystem there are projects that the fremen are involved with to you know terraform and do other various things and i just found that whole part fascinating and it you wouldn't think that's not a great pitch to say to someone, hey, there's a lot of ecology in this book. Mm -hmm. And you know what's really dope? Terraforming or mm -hmm. like trying to get plants to finally grow after thousands of years. And I just thought that was pretty incredible. And there's a particular character in the book that is kind of the um, concentrated personification of the ecologist. And mm -hmm. he's really interesting and tragic and does some really cool stuff. And I just, I don't know, I think... I think whenever someone can take a subject matter that seems pretty dry and maybe like it wouldn't have a huge fan base and then make that an exciting part of something that feels like this epic and indeed Dune became the most widely read science fiction novel ever. And so it's really important in that way as a cultural artifact, but that he was able to make ecology a huge part of that I think is, is really impressive. Yeah. I really like the flexibility of the narrative in that it like it can be really expositional and normally that is such a that's like a really bad thing to say about writing a lot of times mm -hmm. but like okay I was gonna say so is Moby Dick but literally everyone hates that part of Moby Dick there is no one who reads like a hundred pages of whale facts yeah. Not like peppered into conversation between characters, mm -hmm. just like, here's a bunch of whale facts, mm -hmm. dude. No no one's Did really you that. know? Yeah. Can we spend the next twenty pages speaking in detail about how to render whale facts? Yeah. And and listen, ya ya boy Tolkien mm -hmm. did a little bit of this with chairs and yeah. such. Oh yeah. my god. And songs sung problem. by dwarves. Mm -hmm. So love him. Love Lord of the Rings. Miss you mean it. But I don't need three pages on a chair, dude. Mm -hmm. I know you're British. Hold on, just like a little, a little restraint mm -hmm. from the from the from the Oxford Don, por favor. Gosh, put the cup down <laughs> for once. Your wife misses you. Stop drinking with Clive. 
Please. Just <laughs> listen. We get it. It's a nice chair. Yeah. Thanks for the Cimmerillion. Well, I'm gonna get the, to the, it. The Cimmerillion. But here's the th- like. I was. Have mis- you tried to read the Cimmerillion? Yes, I have. It's not great. It's well, okay. not supposed to be. I mean, I think there's a reason that he was like, this is a completed work that I'm happy with and that I are relatively happy, as happy as I can be with, mm-hmm. yeah. and I'm ready to go. And here's a bunch of, like, short story things and ideas. and It's like EO and Jupiter stuff. Yeah. It's like yeah. there's gods in the tree and an even bigger spider. You know what it is? It's like... Reading the script of a Terrence Malick film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you're just like, what? It's like, mm-hmm. he walked outside. <laughs> That's it. That's all you would get for that scene. And then after editing, it'd be like, he's not in the movie anymore. So. <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry, Sean Penn yeah. or whomever. That, <laughs> that was one of those books I learned the hard way. Couldn't do on audio. You really need to do in print because, for one thing... Once you're past, like, Iluvatar, you're like, Manway and Manwi and Manyu and yeah. Manyi. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. we're, we're, we're eight gods deep, and I, I, I've heard one name. It's like a dissertation. Yeah. It, yes. Okay, here's the thing. A dissertation versus a book, and I know this to be true, the things you have to argue in a dissertation are boring to most people in a book. So you have to cut that stuff out. You just have to be like, listen, I trust you. That you invented several languages. You don't have oh, to prove it. Yeah. You don't have to prove it. It's fine. You did it. Yeah. You're a genius. Fantastic. Just tell me about the necklace or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was a tangent. Or hair. Or whatever you want what, to talk about. What have you. Stars. So, having said that, you were talking about exposition in Dune. Oh, well, I was just saying... In Dune, and really, this sounds so pretentious. I'm sorry. Oops. You didn't write it. You didn't write it. Yeah, I didn't write. I didn't write it. Are you yeah. the Harold Bloom of Dune? Who can say? God, kill me now. I think I could literally you would drive do that a knife job. into you would do that my job stomach. Really well, you would do that job really. Ironically, well. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but no one would know. I would know. The mirror would know. <laughs> the Dunes would know. <laughs> um. <laughs> I was about to go off on something, though. What was it? Exposition and Dune. Oh, the comparison is Middlemarch by George Eliot. Middlemarch by... George Eliot, not a George or an Eliot. Yeah. Bigot. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But also she, a logical positivist. Yeah, let's. Talk, we don't have to talk about her personal beliefs, but like she was so like Middlemarch is a fantastic, like is actually a really great novel. But the pitch is like an exploration of morality <laughs> in, in in like the countryside, and you're like, why would I ever want to read 800 pages of this? But there's something in the structure, in the style, in the ways where it's like. Like Doctor, this is such a stupid example, but like Doctor Seuss, or I guess a more refined version would be like E. E. Cummings, or someone who does something very dramatically different with language. That's also doing something dramatically different in terms of narrative. I think he does a really good job of turning exposition into art, and like that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, so, it's inter- It was interesting to me. And felt naturally part of the narrative mm-hmm. and the, yeah. the, sto- the broader story. And. He really asked good questions. And I'm learning as I get older that that's what I really like in any art that I see is like the questions of destiny, foresight. I mean, their entire society operates on the concept that there are people who can see the future. Um, You know, sure, they're Jesuits. They all have one name. It's so hard to keep track, but it works. We got spaceships. Stuff like that. And and I think it's probably the book that I've read that has the least boring pseudo-discussion of destiny versus free will. Mm-hmm. Like, how locked in are we here? Can we change this? How right are people who have prophecies or predict the future? Or do they have to be self-fulfilling? Like, are they kind of on autopilot? I just found that all fascinating that, that he finds himself... In a situation where he kind of has to live into the prophecy destiny thing, but he wants to also subvert it yeah. at the same time. And I haven't read the sequel, so I have no idea what happened. 
Same. I know very from my vague recollection, Jared Leto, Leto <laughs> the second, um, or something. I think that's just in title too. So this is thousands of years. Twenty seconds to Arrakis. Yeah. <laughs> he. So this is a descendant or something. He transcends and becomes one with the worm. He's literally a worm god. I mean, as you do. Space god, worm god, human god, worm. All other worms are gone. He, That's not good. I like the worms, even though they were monsters. But he rations all the spice. Mm. And so the whole universe is in like perfect peace under him. But then... That's by, not a fun story. But by the end of it, he's like, this is a lesson I'm teaching humanity about stagnant about like being still and stagnating or something mm. and then i stopped reading it because i was like yeah you're like is this about stagflation in the 70s under jimmy carter yeah or like <laughs> i was just starting to realize at that time i was like there's a lot of weird stuff about like cultures degenerating that i mm. usually don't like too much about but i don't think it was that i think i just got really I went from being a freshman in college to actually having, like, more work to do. Yeah. So, um... So, placing Dune in the cultural kind of, I don't know, not zeitgeist, but sort of ether, what would you compare it to? I mean, I've already brought up Game of Thrones, but what does it remind you of, or, or what what are some sort of test case, similar yet different uh, cultural artifacts that would help people kind of place it it's definitely in terms of visual medium i in terms of reading it it's definitely old school sci-fi where it's that like asimov type this is a grand history so just be prepared for that Mm -hmm. and just try to see i mean the Foundation series, anything that they wrote, the short stories, even like some Ray Bradbury stuff kind of has like similar elements to it in terms of literature. But in terms of visual medium, it definitely, and I think the remake will incorporate some of this because they want to cash in on, you know, the brand, mm-hmm. um, is it has that 80s futurism, which is like, it's the future. Mm-hmm. So, and the Soviet Union. Yeah, it's, the fu- <laughs> it's the future. So we have like cool space guns, but everything smells bad. And yeah. it's like grimy. So and that like, Blade Runner grime. Like Blade mm-hmm. Runner, Mad Max, like all these future Waterworld events kind of. I know that's like early 90s, right? Yeah, we can call yeah. it 80s. Yeah, but that whole era of like, it's just going to effing suck, dude. Like the that. Dystopia. Yeah. And even Alien, the mm. technology and mm-hmm. how those crews operate. I, it's it, kind of like when you use stuff in your kitchen a lot. And then like a year later, you're like, oh, this is covered in just layers of grease. And I need to like try to get some steel wool and get this stuff clean. It's like mm-hmm. there's this like um, that's part of the, str- the, the strongest elements of Star Wars is the usedness and yeah. the sort of filthy like this is in space but it's not clean and white and black and it's not Mm -hmm. you know it's not sort of a proxy for human perfection or some sort of higher way of life it's like kind of gross yeah i mean the deceit in all these things is that space travel is not a big deal because for us so when you watch something like gravity or 2001 a space Odyssey, even which is really like ooh at the end but in its initial parts that's actual hard science fiction, I think is what people call it, where it's like, look, it's people enjoying relaxing in a space station. We don't do that right now. Mm-hmm. But it's very clean, mm-hmm. quiet, you have to be wealthy. Like, it would be what it would be at the time, where this is like, in Star Wars in particular, it's like, our ship's being shot at. Okay, we're going to have to land. It's like, you're in the vacuum of space. I really hope your ship is good. Like, and those hard realities aren't there. And I think Dune is interesting because like Star Wars, it has that princess prince journey feeling, but it also has these like, but how is this going to affect the economy? Like that's a serious question. Yeah. Dune. Yeah. That's not a serious question. Star Wars. Someone's like, 
what about all the jobs lost because of the Death Star? <laughs> or like, how how big of an expenditure was that for the Galactic Senate? And now we have nothing to show for it? Yeah. Where is this deficit coming from, Naboo? How did we coerce the Jedi into becoming tax collectors? Well, that we killed them all. Well, our clones did. But they were, tax, they were becoming tax collectors before... Oh, you in episode one. Oh, you mean like unregulated <laughs> arms of vengeance for the Galactic Senate? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just operated above the law in every way and <laughs> carried lethal force wherever they went. But yeah, yeah, and were religious fanatics. <laughs> <laughs> I love the future. <laughs> incredible. I feel like there's some, and th- this is more than a bit of a stretch, but just that whole. I am the law mentality. I'm getting some Judge Dredd vibes. Oh yeah. yeah. Since we're on the on the subject of dystopias here, mm-hmm. but I think really one of the, and honestly, till this conversation never really hit me, the whole concept of those things just being mundane and everything being kind of dirty and grimy, it really lends itself to the reality of it, even in these far off fantasy inspired settings you know it's not clean it's not shiny because it's just day-to-day life Mm. space travel is in the context of these types of stories it's it's the bus yeah just how you get there it's how you get there yes and so i mean you're gonna have the military is probably going to be pretty prim and proper and well put together but the average day-to-day folks who are just living their lives on various planets you know, it's going to have that... This is like a truck people. stop in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And isn't that the most terrifying thing of all? I can tell you from personal that is experience. Deep, that deep space. That it is. Yeah, I, yeah I, was, I was thinking about a lot of the comments we've been making about Dune and just thinking of the word coherence, right? Mm-hmm. It, it all hangs together. It all fits together. It makes sense on its own terms. Yes. Even if there are questions, even if there are messy things, even mm-hmm. if you have qualms about it, it's like... A lot of the kind of critique that I have encountered of the the new Star Wars films and even the prequels is like, even if you take these things seriously on their own terms, it doesn't always seem like it goes together or like someone thought it through and was like, this thing affects this thing, which affects this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the craft and and the art that I appreciate of this and things like Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings. Uh, that it seems like everything matters, even if not everything doesn't come back at the end. Yeah. It seems like everything matters, and you can't just say something or do something that's a one-off and throw it out into the yeah. ether. And my super hot take on it is like, because of that average everydayness, especially at the beginning, where there are some weird, not just sci-fi weird, but like actually like, wait, they do what? Like, you can this drug makes you live for how long? And like. Stuff like that, it's really believable. So when at the end, or as we get closer to it, and the more fantastical elements start coming up about destiny and prophecy, I think that gives it purchase to actually ask those questions seriously and for it not to come off as like a cliche. Yeah. And I think that that is why maybe subconsciously people were upset about the finale of Game of Thrones because it wasn't like, oh, we've gone through all the itty-gritty-bitty blah-blah-blah mm-hmm. and now we're actually going to like... They had to start glossing over all that stuff yeah, for like, whatever reason. All that stuff's fine, but it's really... Like, the big scary thing in it is the Night King and all the stuff. Like, that's really scary. Just like in Dune, it ends it with it's like, okay, well, you're going to be a god. So all of this economy stuff, like... You're transcending that, too. And I just feel like, obviously, we don't have the end of those books. We just have the end of that TV show. But that's why I love Dune. It, like, gives itself room to actually ask some of those bigger questions. And I want Game of Thrones to do that when we get the final ones. Like, I'll probably be 60. Yeah. And it'll be his head on, like, a cat robot body. It'll be his concubine finishing it. Yeah, his concubine will be dictating it to me. Because I'm blind from jewels. <laughs> <laughs> I also love my Amazon job. 
good. Sorry, I'm just talking about the future. No, the future's gonna. The future's bright. Oh yeah, future is bright. Wow. So having kind of incoherently rearticulated the plot to Dune and compared it to various other things, what do you hope for for the uh, tentative? December 2020 release, New Dune, which I have only seen a couple of still photos of. What what are some of the things that you hope? Well, first of all, do we even know what went wrong with the Lynch one? Like, why was it bad? Like, did, I mean, Lynch is a good filmmaker, I think. And it's like, why did it go, what went wrong and what needs to go right this time? I feel like we could have spent half of this recording just delving into that. But the things that jumped to mind for me, because I told you, actually, it was within a couple of weeks of when I left Florida to move up here to Tennessee, and I told you, hey, I was packing boxes, I was cleaning things, and I saw on Amazon Prime the original Dune was on there, and I gave it a watch. And I texted you maybe 20 or 30 minutes into it and went, you need to watch just what a complete cluster that this is, and it's... It is a mess and a spectacle to behold. And by the time I got to the end, and I know that this sounds similar to my feedback about the book, not saying it's on par with the book, but I have to say that when you get to the end, I respect the effort. I think that one of the, one of the biggest things that went wrong was wrong thing at the wrong time. I just don't know at that point in history, how mass marketable that type of story was. Mm. Because I think that, you know, Star Wars showed that fantasy and magic and pulp sci-fi and those things could be marketable. People could enjoy it if it's in the right vehicle that they're going to enjoy. I don't know that there was a precedent for a film coming out that had that, again, to use the example, Game of Thrones-style political intrigue set in space with some really gross unpleasant looking characters yeah like this wasn't the fun jedi yeah. battle the uh the i think it was the harkonnen um he was the one in the giant flying wheelchair and he's bloated and he's sweating he's got slime mm-hmm. coming out of sores he literally drinks the blood of a slave child or something and mm-hmm. just holy yeah, it's like, very unpleasant yeah and i think you wrap all of that up into then also taking a very very in-depth book trying to condense it down to a single movie you know a runtime of two ish hours i forget mm-hmm. the exact runtime I think it just had a whole lot working against it. And I, I feel like the biggest failing, though, was really just the, the, t- the point in time that it came out. I think that really giving it a fair shake, it was an honest effort for the time. I think the technology and the capability that was there, people will go back and, you know, they'll crap all over the special effects that were there. But in all fairness, the aesthetic and capability for the day, it's not that bad when you look at it in context. It just kind of feels really weird and thrown together so do you does that give you any hope for this new one or could could that same type of thing happen now for me it gives me hope because there are at least precedents set for both on film and on television darker stories of the future and of space and technology and all these things and more political intrigue and all the uh, the intricacy of it. I think there's opportunity for it to be done and to be done well. I think that with the capability of technology, there is an opportunity to integrate a lot of the weirder characters and creatures and place settings and have it not come off as just being really weird looking. But like with anything, I think there's still a huge danger of trying to streamline too much but then also you can you can fall victim to being too loyal to the source material, trying to cram too much mm. into a film and have it be bloated because, you know, not everything in the book needs to be in the movie. They are separate mediums for a reason. Yeah. So there's, there's plenty of room for this to go wrong, but I think, at least aesthetically, there's, there's an opportunity for this to be done right. And that's what I'm cautiously hoping yeah and i've been the the few movies that i've seen from him uh the director denis villeneuve he uh 
he's kind of, for me, knocked it out of the park so far. And Agreed. whether it was Arrival, um, he, he did a couple other movies. And I, um, I just dig the feel of his movies. I don't, I think he can do weird and alien and technology and unsettling without it being too gross. Mm -hmm. And I think David Lynch just doesn't care. Like, I think David yes. Lynch is like, I'm going to make a gross movie, and it's going to be super gross, and if you don't like it, I'm David Lynch, and I'm going to go on being David Lynch. And I'm yeah. going to do some transcendental kind of meditation therapy I now. Mean, and uh, peace out. Yeah, it's almost like a categorical error, because it's like, David Lynch, this, again, sounds very stuffy, but he's like, what's that word? Ugh. An out... Outdoor? Yeah. Like, if you watch a David Lynch movie, it's because it's a David Lynch mm -hmm. movie. So you know... It's about him. Yeah, well, it's about his vision. You're yeah. interested to see, like, it's going to be, like, subliminal and weird and unsettling or poignant or something. Just like you do when you watch, like, a Kubrick film or mm -hmm. any people. Tarantino movie. Yeah, Tarantino movies. Like, it's good, but it's, like, there's a lot of people who if that's your first introduction to it that's the worst way to do it that's like being introduced to stephen king through kubrick's the shining like mm. stephen king hates stanley kubrick's film even though it's he dope. really shouldn't because see our episode on the shining yeah oops i did it again but like the film's better than the book i'm sorry but like the film is great it's incredible but if that's your introduction to stephen king you're gonna have a really bad time jumping from that to something else and it's the same thing with like that's a good movie if you like David Lynch. Because I love David Lynch. That movie is hilarious. It's weird. It's great. But I would never be like, hey, interested in Dune? Here you go. Here's your best starting point. Yeah, I think there's Lynch as an auteur. His vision is going to sort of over-determine the material. And you can't escape... You know, it's like if Cronenberg did this, obviously there'd be like mm. 70 minutes of worm footage. <laughs> like, That'd be great. That'd um, be great. I would love to see that. Maybe yeah. Maybe we can do the sequels. Yeah, and, and, and you know, if Spielberg did it, it would feel kind of like polished and shiny. Yeah. And I think Villeneuve is probably a good choice for, for this remake because, once again, he can do space, but he can do kind of that weird human feeling of oh no this is weird and I don't know what to do with my body a little bit mm -hmm. and I think that will that will play out pretty well and uh, I think that he also has a sense of um, time he deals with time a lot in his mm -hmm. stuff and time is really really important to this story and I hope that whatever cinematographer is involved that they take the you know planet as character aspect really seriously and if the stills that i've seen are any indication it seems like they're doing that so i have some i have some hope for the for the film i think it'll be uh i i hope and pray that i get to see it in a movie theater mm -hmm. that'd be fun i think the thing i'm probably most excited to see is how he tackles the narration because having seen what he did with uh blade runner 2049 and his ability to just like let things breathe. Like tone I, poem. Tone poem. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need to explain everything. We're just going to watch this character in silence for the next several minutes. Mm -hmm. And if you have an attention span, this is going to be great. Yeah. And if you don't, not my problem. Yeah. And with such a narration-heavy writing style of the book, as we were talking about earlier, I'm really fascinated to see what he's going to do with it. So I'm, yeah. I'm very hopeful. Yeah, I think a lot will still lean on, like, the spoken prophecy. Mm -hmm. Like, both the uh, Becky Jesuit prophecy and the uh, Fremen. Mm -hmm. I think those will be very important moments to be like, hey, this is what we're expecting here. Mm -hmm. So, who knows? But then I think a lot is going to land on, instead of a ton of narrative and inner monologue, just really really focusing on the landscape and what it does and how mm -hmm. it feels. But I'm optimistic. Agreed. Word. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, this has been a discussion of Dune and other things. And uh, I'm Ryan. I'm Nick. I'm Rick. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.
me. Bye.